Latter-day Saints. Latter-day Saints. Latter-day Saints. Latter-day Saints. Latter-day Saints. Latter-day Saints. Hi, everybody. Welcome to This Week in Mormons. I am Jeff Openshaw, one of your hosts, founder of this little shindig we do here. Sorry for the later show this week. We've had some, uh, I have had some technological issues thanks to Verizon Fios. Uh, this show is decidedly not sponsored by Verizon Fios, is all I will say about that. Well, maybe I'll say more, but either way, I don't want to, I'd be remiss if I did not introduce my wonderful co-host for the week, Jared Gillens is here. How you doing, buddy? Good. And I'm, I'm, I'm always happy when you do remember to introduce me because, well, I mean, I know it was just the one time, or was it twice? No, was it's, it twice it's been more, that, it's been more, when we do, when we interview people, it's been more than once. Yeah, it's been more than once. Yeah, it's like, oh, we're so excited to have Nylon McBain here, but oh, oh yeah, there's, a, oh yeah, five minutes in, oh yeah, Jared's here too. <laughs> I suppose I should really rethink the way I do that. And I should just say like, hey, here's the show. I'm I'm Jeff Omenshaw. I'm joined by Jared Gillens and we are excited this week to welcome so-and-so. That would make the most sense. I think I get so, right. so excited about the guests that I wanted to interview them. Well, and rightfully so. When we have a guest, like especially, you know, just celebrated authors who write wonderful books, like, of course, they should be foremost in our minds and they should be the, the spotlight, you know, that should always be on them. But yes. it's nice to be remembered. And loved, Jared. You are and remembered and loved. Thank you. you. Forget. Well, I hope this episode, everybody, I hope it sounds okay because I can't hear my own voice right now. Um, lots of this is the, like I was telling, this is harkening back to the old days of weird twins. So, what happened is I've had basically no internet activity for over two days at our house. It kind of came back, kind of left. So, we can't go through our usual way of recording Monday night on Zencaster and putting everything together. And so, uh, Jared and I are literally speaking on a phone call right now recording independently and i am staring at my phone so i can go through the stories we will get to this is a this is you know this is how brother I'm, brigham made podcasts this is exactly how he made podcasts also yes he did that and um it is because of him i have a very large uh about a eight by eight opening in my house that apparently is good enough for an elevator and, um, <laughs> you know that's a myth right you know that yes we, i like, do when we, we read a whole book we read a whole book yeah. about how that's a myth and, we, and then we interviewed the author of that book who confirmed it was a myth that was a good episode i uh <laughs> i love that that one is a myth because it makes sense when you heard that one growing up right like oh my goodness what what foresight elevators and then keith erickson's like yeah elevators existed like in the 1840s uh the the people knew about them this was yeah. not an unknown thing oh the good times but um, anyway, how's life? Uh, what's going on there in your own private Idaho? <laughs> nice. That's a, that a good reference. Um, Thank you. So we went to, we, we got to go on the very last day to the Pocatello Temple open house. And I will report back to you, Jeff, that it's pretty. It's pretty inside that temple. To me, I look at pictures of it, it reminds me of like a, almost a mini draper is how it mm. looks, I guess. Yeah. I it's its own thing, but it it kind of falls in with Well, that. as we discussed somewhat recently on, on this podcast, like a lot of, especially a lot of American Mountain West temples are really just a series of boxes on the outside. And, the, and, and they do, you know, put some nice decoration. And of course, there's a steeple. This one actually has a Moroni. Um mm-hmm. Probably maybe one of the last to have one, at least during the tenure of the current president of the church. Sorry, I'm just waiting for like coming to Apple TV Plus, the last Moroni. <laughs> That's I'd watch that. Yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, I mean, but really, yeah, the outside, if you view it from a distance, it kind of looks like, like you said, like maybe like a Draper Temple or a smaller like wings cut off of the Timpanogos Temple or whatever. Like it's just it's just a couple of boxes stuck together. But as you get closer and you look at the details, uh, we re- we talked about. I think the last time I was on this show, actually, um, we discussed an article where somebody, a, a reporter, who ended up getting a personal tour by Elder Stevenson. Oh, anyway, right. he talked yeah. about a lot of the the decor and how they've tried to reflect. Um, Local flora and fauna, mostly flora, the state flower, which huh, I'm not a very good Idahoan because I can't remember the name of it now. It's like the Z- Zingia or something like that. Zinga? Zing, I don't know. No, Zinga makes all those. Zoysia, it's Zoysia grass. That is the state flower. 
No, I don't think that's correct. Oh. Um, anyway, it's a, a lovely pink flower is threaded throughout the temple and you see it immediately as you approach like the there are exterior stained glass windows that feature this pink like really striking pink flower and it's interesting because like it was someone one of the nephews or nieces i was with was like huh there's a lot of pink for a temple um but i thought it was really pretty and it was and it reflected like local natural surroundings and then as you go throughout that flower is sort of the main decorative motif throughout and it's actually really nice because you see cool. all of these cool pink flowers uh in, in, you know into the stained glass and such uh and then as you approach the the celestial room uh, they are carved on the exterior side of the doors, and the exterior is like this really rich. I don't know. I don't know if it's mahogany, but that that dark kind of wood, and it has the flowers engraved into it, carved into it. And then you open the celestial room door, and it's the same thing, but it's like white. So there's this really cool, striking contrast. But that theme of the flower continues throughout. And then once you're inside the celestial room, they have little stained glass panels in there as well that are backlit um and some of the flowers are pink but many of them are now yellow and it's really cool because then you get this like elevated brightness and and something that makes it stand out and be different even though they've continued the flower motif the yellow brings this whole new light and cheer to it i don't know i just i was really impressed you could tell there's a whole lot of thought that went into the temple the other thing that was really cool my brother-in-law uh, said that all of the marble, like most of the flooring as you walk throughout, is marble. And he said that all of the marble was quarried in Bethlehem, Israel, and brought here, which I think is pretty cool. And he pointed out that as you walk oh. on the tile, on the marble tile, you can see fossils. There are cross-sections of fossils, like, all throughout the floor of this temple. So you see, like, little nautilus cross-sections and, and things like that. It's it's really cool. It's it's really pretty. And there's a lot of details to appreciate. So it was fun. I hadn't been to on a temple open house since Philadelphia, which was, what, like 2016? About five, five years. years ago, yeah. 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 So I, I really enjoyed it. And it was nice to be there with family. Um, most of the members of our party were young kids like who are not old enough to even to do baptisms yet so it was cool to have them be able to walk around and see the inside of a temple and be able to talk with them about uh what they saw it was it was really great it was cool cool way to spend our saturday afternoon i appreciate this report because like you said when when a lot of the mountain west and beyond frankly a lot of just american temples are kind of boxy, like you said. So it's cool to learn about the details that they've really worked in there that are relevant to their... I mean, one detail we always think of in a lot of newer temples um, that often have, uh, you know, the three-room progressive endowment. You got the first room, second room, and then the celestial room, right? And uh, and I'm, I'm assuming Pocatello is similar to that, but that means they always have mural work now. You know, the, and the big thing they've tried to do for a while is have these murals reflect something uh, about the area, like in my my hometown, my Newport Beach Temple back home, you know the mural is of a rocky California coast, and there are like otters and stuff like that. And it looks great, and and cypress tree, all kinds of fun things like that. Um, so that's cool. I'm glad you got to see all that. Did you get this level of detail from the tour? Because this seems very detailed for, in my experience, from touring a temple where they're speaking a lot about the motifs and the type of wood and the fact that the marble was quarried in Bethlehem and has yeah. fossil market markings in it. Like that's really that's a very detailed tour. If they no, and a lot of it. So my brother-in-law, uh, who had he had already been through with his family, um, and he came again and brought his youngest son. Um, so he, he knew a lot of this stuff and I, and I, and I think he, he's, he's local, uh, he's from Pocatello. And so he knew a lot of people who kind of had more inside track on some of that stuff. Um, so a lot of that detail I knew came from him. I, I don't know about like when I said mahogany, I don't know about that, but, but, you know, but it might've been cherry, might've been teak, whatever it was, know, it was a nice rich, say. dark wood that had a very striking contrast when you opened it up and saw that the other side was white. So that's cool. um, but yeah, no, That's a lot really of that cool. stuff came because my brother-in-law uh, just knows the right people to know those kind of things. Um, oh, I did want to say one more thing. And this, I guess, is more of an assignment, a call out, if you will, to our Twim Nation. Uh, there was one, a lot of the paintings inside, a lot of them were um, landscapes. And they were, again, local surroundings, local mountains and rivers and things like that, which was pretty cool. But there was also some cool original art uh, depicting, you know, like you would expect uh, church history and scenes from the Bible and the Book of Mormon. 
And there was one that really I loved, and it was a painting depicting uh, Joseph and Mary with the infant Jesus at the temple. And it's got in the center, like, focus of the painting is, is um, what's his name? Simeon. Simeon holding the infant Jesus uh, and, you know, and prophesying or, or you know, what, as he did. And then Anna is also there to next to him. But, like, it was just a really great painting. I loved the details. I loved the style. And, of course, they don't put little plaques like you would in a museum that say who the painting is by, et cetera. Right. So if anybody in the Twim Nation knows what I'm talking about, like, if you know what is the painting of Simeon, Anna, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus in the Pocatello Temple, and who is the artist? Because I would love to see if a print is available or just even just, just to have access, just to know who it is and uh, where it comes from because, yeah, it was a really cool painting. It was a favorite, one of my favorite I, I, things I saw inside the temple. I've got one in my mind that probably isn't it. There's one that's got kind of a overall yellow-golden kind of overtones in it, and it, it's like presenting Jesus, the baby at the temple with all of them. But I imagine you've seen that one. If that one shows No, it's not the, it's so, not the you know one the that we're talking about. Yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. I think that, I don't think that one has Anna in it. It's just I think it's just okay. Nicodemus or not Nicodemus. It's Simeon. Um, anyway. I, I'm also curious. Has uh, has the work of Jorge Coco made it into any of our temples yet? Because they uh, used him in manuals. I know he's not allowed in the foyers of our yeah. meeting houses, but I would love to see some Jorge Coco in the temple. I'd be all in. Oh, that was another cool thing. Speaking of things that aren't allowed in foyers, um, <laughs> there was a, Min- a Minerva Teichert. Uh, reproduction. So it wasn't one of the, her originals, but it was a reproduction that had been um, like a very good reproduction that had been in the, a local stake center for like a long, long time. And then of course it became unapproved art. And it's the one, it's the one with the uh, pioneers with, you know, there's like an ox drawn wagon and you've, I'm sure you've seen it. Like it's a, it's, it's like the, if you see a minor of Tykert, pioneer painting this is the one anyway a very nice reproduction of a very large one was removed from a stake center but then they put it in the temple and i remember talking (laughs) talking about it with my brother-in-law i was like i think it's kind of funny that it's like no 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 you're not allowed to display this in the stake center anymore but it is suitable for the temple temple. (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) another thing that was cool he pointed out so there's you know there's always uh, a chapel in the temple and usually the chapel is used just sort of as a waiting area, you know, as you're waiting, if you're, oh. if you're gathering with other people. Hold on. Point of order. I don't know that there is always a chapel in a temple. Oh, well, there's often Definitely a chapel. Not. I think most temples yes. I've been in have had a chapel. But good Usually point. slightly larger ones. If you're going anything that's sub 20,000 square feet, I doubt it has a chapel. Right. Good, anyway. good point. Good point. Sorry. That was, a, that was No, no, no. I, I, if anybody knows me, they know I enjoy pedantic points of order. We are, we are the, your local pedants. We're doing our best. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so this temple does have a chapel. And one of the things that was really cool about it is that it had its own stained glass and it was gorgeous, this stained glass um, feature inside the chapel. And my brother-in-law pointed out that it was, and it's completely different from the style of any, all the other stained glass and everything else in, the, in this temple. And he said it was from a local Methodist church and this Methodist church was being torn down because, you know, whatever, every, you know, everybody, every church tears down its old churches, right? It's old, it's old meeting houses, chapels, etc. cetera, um, when they become unusable and just not worth renovating. Anyway, gorgeous, beautiful, um, stained glass scene featuring the savior and a lot of other cool just details. And apparently the church found out that this uh, Methodist church was being torn down and they rescued the stained glass and, and used it in the chapel of the temple. So we have Methodist art, um, hang, you know, on display in the Pocatello temple. And I'm glad, I'm glad we do. It's, it's just this very, very striking stained glass display. So cool stuff. That's, that's that is super, super cool. And, um, well, good for the people of Pocatello. One thing that, as an aside, if any of you have been to um, you know Church of Jesus Christ Temples org, the the site that is frankly better than the church's own websites about temples, um, the guy who runs it, Rick Satterfield, is a Pocatello native, and I believe I actually think the land that went to the temple was like part of the Satterfield family, if I'm not yes. mistaken, or something like yep, that. Yep, that's so, correct. They anyway, they, I, they gifted that land to the church several years ago with the intent that hopefully a temple would be built on. Yeah. I think it's like twelve acres. It's it's a big lot. Yeah, which like I mean, just just good for you, Eastern Idaho. I don't know. I mean, you're they've built out so many 
along the uh, just that whole corridor there right now. I mean, you know, you've got Pocatello. Obviously, you have Idaho Falls has been there, and I got Rexburg number two coming along. Mm-hmm. Rexburg. I don't know North. where I, unless you get one in, uh, you know, in Rigby, something like that. I don't know, or I, I don't know who's. To I don't know. I mean, I think between two Rexburg temples and Idaho Falls Temple and Pocatello, I think I think they're pretty well covered for the near future. There is that. What's that MLM that there is along the freeway up there? Oh, you're talking about Melaleuca? You want a Melaleuca yeah. temple? Yeah, something like that, yeah. yeah. Turn the Melaleuca building into a temple a la Vernal, Utah kind of... Yeah, a la that. Even though the Melaleuca building looks about as like Tower of Babel as I can think in my mind. It's been a while. It's, I haven't been up there in like five years, but... Anyway. It's got... Yeah, no, what it, what it looks like to me is like somebody's poor adaptation of like trying to capture the magic of like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, but it's instead it's a <laughs> tea tree oil based, uh, MLM. So, and as a that is a movie I've been debating whether I can watch with my oldest kid yet. The Gene Wilder is, version, I'm guessing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That, not, not the Johnny Depp. No, the Gene Wilder one, which is, yeah. I mean, he might think it's hilarious, like, but I don't know if he'll get the subtle humor. Like all the funny vignettes they have when everyone's obsessing over the golden ticket campaign and you see how like grown adults are trying to scam or that one. <laughs> so this is such a digression. When they go to like the FBI is like talking to this woman, they're like, she's like, do anything. I just want Harold back. What are they? I'll do anything they want, anything. And then the guy gets off the phone, the agent. And he's like, they want your case of Wonka bars. And she sits down like, did you hear me? They want your case of Wonka bars. And all she says is, how long do you think they'll give me to think it over? And I love that 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 level of humor exists in this random movie that's based on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Anyway, um, so some quick, quick other temple news. The church quietly announced the location for the Ephraim, Utah Temple. Um, If you might remember, the Ephraim, Utah Temple has the fun distinction of being the only temple I can think of in the past... 15 years easy that was not announced during general conference. Um, It was announced back in May of this year, uh, essentially in response to everything that went down with the Manti Utah temple and the artwork and and well, not restoration, but sort of trying to preserve uh, what existed there. Jared, you and I have, as we've done shows over the year, we've spoken about that at length, but one of the main things we said way back then, aside from initially, like why not preserve the murals was, if we're building so many temples in Utah and the concern is capacity, can't we just like build another temple somewhere near Manti to give them, just give them some modern temple to do it. And then lo and behold, in May, they announced a temple in Ephraim. Um, and I can spare you of any of my thoughts about how I find it funny that during all of this saga, they never once said like, well, we didn't know the saints would be so concerned about the Manti temple. So we took it to the Lord. They've treated everything like that. Like it's just changing like the, they've got just received different guidance from on high the whole time. Like I think they just they just don't want to encourage <laughs> the members to like feel they like they could demand changes. <laughs> and, exactly, and, they don't. Yeah. I get it. I totally get it. But it's just it's just funny. even though that's kind of how it works a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, and like, but okay, not to stay on that, but if I don't think there'd be anything wrong with saying, "Hey, we hear you, and we inquired about this, but we still don't feel that that's the right thing to do. Like we we should follow Plan A." Like even after like really following up with the Lord about it, like I feel like that's an okay thing to say. I mean, right. unless we Martin yeah. Harris them into submission at yeah. some point, we yeah we what's, we what's wrong with that? We we don't feel that's the correct direction. We're gonna we feel inspired to stay with Plan A of destroying priceless historical art. Yeah, which they're not going to do now. And so to accommodate that, we get a temple in Ephraim, Utah. Uh, it'll be small by church, by Utah standards, 39,000 square feet, but still three stories, which is actually, which is on par for Utah. I don't think Utah builds temples that are not three levels at least. Um, but that's like almost half the size of a lot of the other ones going up in, you know, Orem and Saratoga Springs and Leighton or oh, else Syracuse. Sorry, sorry to digress again, but that was one other interesting thing about Pocatello is that there wasn't a basement. Like when we went into the room that had the huh. the font i was like wait we didn't have to go downstairs for the baptismal font and my brother-in-law was like hey it's still under you know it's still below ground level but like yeah there was no basement it was just the baptismal font was on the main floor so it is as far as i could tell it's just a, it's a two-story temple and that's not unheard of i i'm curious about the the i guess quote-unquote doctrine surrounding that where we've always assumed baptismal fonts need to be in the basement 
Because they're like the Newport Beach Temple, which I mentioned before, it's not. You go in the temple and just off to the right is the baptistry, and it's a single-story temple. And so we've done hmm. that this in many instances. But I, too, have always thought, doesn't it like have to be in the basement? In the San Diego it doesn't. Temple— I think it's just, it's just the, the symbolism is that it's it should be underground. Like the, the font itself, like when you bury the person in the water, that exactly, the symbolism yeah. is that, there, it, that the water level is more or less the ground level so that they're also going what would be considered under the earth. Um, and so I guess as long as you're at ground level, right? Because the the, the, and, the and oxen, like, were, the oxen definitely were sunken down a level. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so you know, so the font was low, but still, it, we weren't in a basement. So yeah, like I don't, I, I don't think you know, I, I was never under the illusion that there was some sort of requirement for it to be in in the basement. But it's like that's just what I'm used to. And I was like, oh, well, here we are on the main level, and here's the baptistry. I might be off on this, but I could swear the temple in Laie. I, I I think the the they've redone it, but I remember when I went there. I think the baptistry is at ground level, but there it's different. Where the font it's is sitting at ground level, and you walk upstairs to get into the font. You know, because modern day temples they kind of ring it around with platforms, and you just walk out to the to the font. It's all and then it's all carved out below. I, I I'm pretty sure that one then technically would have a font that is burying you above ground level. You I know think. what? I bet you correct I bet you we correct could me Google, if I'm wrong, folks. I bet you we could find an image right I now. I bet you can Google that, Jared, because oh, I right. don't have that capability at present. I'm so, gonna try and do- while while ahead, you're doing ahead. that, I'll just tell you about so there's the Ephraim Utah Temple, great times. It's gonna be just northeast of the Snow College campus. Ephraim, of course, is a very small town. Snow College is there, you know, a, a state two year college in Utah. Um it's going to be on a 9.16 acre site at 200 north, 400 east, right by Snow College. I mean, to, to give context, all of Ephraim is like 10 blocks by 10 blocks. It's that, you know, it's not a, it's in the, it's a rural area in the middle of the San Pete Valley. And that's wonderful for them to get their own, their own temple. The church hasn't said much more about it at the time. Uh, no design has been released uh, for that matter. And they just say project leaders are working with city officials on preliminary planning. I imagine they'll face a lot of opposition in rural Utah about building the temple they want to build. That's clearly going to be a major issue. Um, so there we go. And it's basically on what Google Maps makes it look like it's just a farmland, something like that right now in the temple. So good job, Ephraim. Good job, Ephraim. I am looking now at an image of the, how do you say it? Laiei? Laiei. Laiei. Sorry. Sorry, Hawaiians. Um, this that temple in Hawaii, the one on the one on on, on uh, Oahu, and uh, yeah, so it's interesting. Yeah, there's like you there you can see like the carpeted floor, a tiled floor of the baptistry, and in order to access the font, you have to walk up a short staircase, and then walk mm-hmm. down into the font. So I don't know. I'm guessing it probably has something to do with. Uh, high water tables? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not well, sure. Well, I think that, that wasn't, wasn't that pretty similar though in a lot of pioneer era temples back when? I mean, I'm pretty sure even the font at Manti was probably like that. I, I imagine the faults at Salt Lake were like that. Now they don't exist and they're, now the fonts are going to be like down in the basement in a different place because, you know, they're doing all that. But, uh, right. Uh, hang on. I'm going to, I'm going to, because like from the same era is the, uh, yeah, because it's definitely not the only one to do that. I know that. Right. So, where's this one? I'm doing a little search on my phone while we speak here. I might have just found Laia here. Let's see. What this All right, I'm looking is. at Mesa because that's from the same era. No, Mesa, you go down into the font. You don't. You don't have to go up first. Wait, what's this one? This is just a picture on the church's website that just says temple baptismal font, but it doesn't yeah. give me any additional information. It has very ornate stairs. Is that what you're looking at? Yeah, it doesn't say uh, which one it wh- is. Wide stairs. It looks kind of Art Deco almost, yeah. which makes which makes me wonder: is it is it Cardston or is it Idaho Falls? Maybe because that's that 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 wouldn't fit the uh, Laie architecture. I don't think because there's a more ornate one that clearly looks like Salt Lake that I'm looking at based on uh, the, Cardston the does require you to walk up a little staircase too. Yeah, I think this was, I mean, so the, the, in a lot of these though, the oxen are still dug down a little yeah. bit. Yeah. yeah, but it's, yeah, it's interesting. It's a little different. So yeah, so that whole, the baptism fund has to be below ground level. That might not be a hard and fast rule because the, 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 the Hawaiian one didn't look like it would, you know, it might not 
meet that requirement because it's 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 elevated a little bit even though the oxen are dug down a little so yeah again i know it's like i think the point is that it's symbolic and that that's something that can help point our minds to the symbolism of being buried in death and then being raised up again a new creature um this has been a fun way to spend 10 minutes i've enjoyed it has thank you you want to move on do you want to keep going sure all right, so just really quickly, and this is sort of sort of adjacent, but there was there was a fire at the Joseph Smith Memorial Building. Uh, there's just a really brief um, little statement about it uh, from KUTV2, the CBS affiliate for, for Salt Lake. But it just says that the, the church believed that the, the fire, which was very minor, uh, they believe it was caused by construction materials. And there was no real... It was just on the roof, on the, on the second-story roof, uh, no real damage. Everyone was able to go back in the building almost immediately. As, yeah, it says the building has reopened and is operating as normal. So just a very minor fire. fire. But the reason I thought this was kind of adjacent is because uh, I believe it was on the Facebook post from TWIM when you guys showed this. Somebody jokingly said, oh, man, we almost got another Salt Lake Temple. And I think what they were <laughs> yeah, referring to was the Provo Tabernacle fire, which gutted it and ended up, you know, paving the way for it to be made into a temple. So I thought that was kind of funny, but also too soon, too soon to joke about the Provo Tabernacle fire. Come on, people. I agree. Anyway, but I'm glad, I'm glad the Joseph Smith Memorial Building is okay. We can continue to watch, I don't know, what are they showing there now in the little theater? I was going to say Legacy and I was like, oh, that was a 90s throwback. Well, first of all, are they showing anything right now? Or is it? I don't know, probably not. The church is overall pretty responsible with uh, COVID type things. But uh, yeah, yeah. so I was like, legacy, no. Uh, Testaments, no. I guess... No, they're showing the... uh, I think they've been showing the re-edit of Joseph Smith, Prophet of the Restoration. If you remember, there's the original, and then they like recut the whole thing. I never saw the original. The original one has been on YouTube, but I don't know if it's gone now. Like intention, not like bootlegged, but like the church put it up there so you could watch the... Original cut because it's it's a pretty substantial shift in terms of what the film covers. I haven't seen either for a while, but uh, I believe they exist. Um, interesting little story here: how Elder Rasband experienced a change of heart after being disappointed with his mission call. So Elder Rasband did one of those "Hear Him" videos. If you've seen those, it's when they're they're focused in pretty tightly on one of the brethren with some very nice lighting, and they share a nice message and thoughts. So Elder Rasband's turn came up. And um, basically, he explains that when he was assigned to serve as a young missionary in the Eastern States Mission, which is what it was back then, just like the whole Eastern U.S., uh, he was initially incredibly disappointed because he really wanted to serve in Germany, where his father, brother, and brother-in-law had all served. But after realizing he needed to find peace and a better attitude about his assignment, he turned to the scriptures and read in Doctrine and Covenants section 100, verses 3 and 4, that said, Behold and lo... I have much people in this place in the regions round about, and an effectual door shall be opened in the regions round about in this eastern land. Therefore I, the Lord, have suffered you to come unto this place, for thus it was expedient in me for the salvation of my souls. And so he continued saying, like, I had just been called to the Eastern States Mission, and the Lord says, I've called you to this eastern land, and that changed my attitude quite a bit. So first of all, I thought that was cool, and I thought that was relatable to many. Um because I, th- I think disappointment with mission calls is a real thing. And I imagine there are many people who struggle in different ways to sort of come to terms with it or accept it. And I imagine there might be, some, literally, I think there are probably some people who accept their mission call and serve their mission and they're never thrilled with the place they get called to despite the experiences they have, which sounds kind of weird. Like, I don't think, I don't want to detract from the, you know, the powerful spiritual witnesses they have and the miracles they render and all those great things, but they might like forever be sad. They didn't know. Oh, I didn't get to go to Germany either. Right. Um, I don't know, Jared, do you think there's anything to that? I can't, this, I don't want to sound snooty. Like I can't totally empathize here. Like I got called to Spain. I was psyched to go to Spain. I thought that was cool. I got called to Spain. So, okay. I've never had that experience, but do you, have you seen this? Do you feel that there's, Oh, I can relate. Like anybody else? Yeah. For, for whatever reason, I had it in my head that I was going to go to Argentina. And, and the only reason thinking back now to 20 year, plus years ago, the only reason I can think of that I would have had like my that in my heart or mind or whatever as a desire or an, an assumption was because I had a, a young men's leader uh, that I really admired, that I loved a lot, that had served in Argentina. So I kind of thought, I don't know, Argentina, I don't know. I can't think of why. But like for whatever reason, I thought, I think I'm going to go to Argentina. And so when I opened my call and it was 
Phoenix, Arizona, I was like, oh, that's not Argentina. But then I saw it was Spanish speaking and I was like, oh, well, <laughs> I guess that's a good compromise. <laughs> um, but it's funny because when I read it out loud, you know, I had my family gathered around as, as one does. And I said, Phoenix, Arizona, and people laughed and they thought I was kind of joking because at the time my sister lived in Mesa. My oldest sister was in Mesa. Oh, they were like, oh, funny, Jared, you're not going to Phoenix. That's Where are you actually going? I'm like, no, I'm seriously going to Phoenix. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know, but I, I, don't, I didn't ex- experience the same uh, level of disappointment or, you know, just, you know, the, anything that caused me to, to need to do some serious soul searching uh, once I kind of wrapped my head around it. I thought, okay, well, you know, that's where I'm going, I guess. And I'll work hard at learning Spanish. I'd taken like four years of Spanish in high school and in junior high. So I was like, whatever, that's cool. I get to learn Spanish and it'll be fine. And to this day, if anybody asks me what I think, what I would think about moving to Phoenix, I'd say, heck no, (laughs) because I do not like that city, but I loved my experience there and I loved learning Spanish and I loved all the, you know, it's cliche, but I really did love all the people that I met and worked with. They were, they were amazing, but yeah, like Phoenix is not an exotic or fun or to me desirable destination in any way. Sorry, Phoenician and Mesa listeners to this podcast. Don't don't be sorry. Everyone got my earful back in June when I went there for my sister's wedding. It's, 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 there's nothing, it's irredeemable. No, it is. Well, one thing I will say, it's irredeemable. It's irredeemable. Sorry. Sorry, Phoenix. Uh, but I do like the last three months of my mission. I was up north in Prescott, not Prescott, oh, nice. nice Prescott, area. Prescott, yeah. Arizona, and I loved Prescott. And I've spent time in Flagstaff. I, you know, that I think Northern Arizona is is a wonder. I think there's a lot of really cool stuff to see. But uh, yeah, Phoenix and all points south. I you can keep it. Although I've heard Tucson's a decent town. No, no, I was gonna say not all points south. Tucson's cool. Yeah, I've heard, two, right. I've heard two zones decent, but yeah, like it's, Phoenix. It's and, really just Phoenix. It's just the Phoenix metropolitan area. Like all right. Of, but we, except for you fine listeners from the Santan Valley, we got all the love for you. You're doing mm. great things out there in Queen Creek and the Santan. Queen Creek, yeah. Yeah. I had a, um, like I went to Spain, but I think like both of my parents had dreams that I got called, was going to be called to Romania, which I thought was so weird because they're also not even married. So that was kind of, I was like, okay, maybe I'll go to Romania. That sounds fine too. Obviously, I didn't, but kind of how you mentioned the, the Spanish speaking compromise in a way. Uh, when, only when I got to Spain and got to know the country better and all that did I learn that Spain is full of Romanian immigrants. Um, Romanian Romanians who are immigrating elsewhere in Europe have largely gone to Spain and Italy because the language barrier, Romanian's a romance language, is it's easier than going to other countries so they prefer those two and so like i spent two years teaching tons of romanians which was really interesting and we learned a lot of romanian and stuff and i've always reflected on that like no i did not get called to romania but i absolutely got like some kind of a taste of romania even though i was uh in spain it's funny how the lord works like that you know you get you get different experiences and they're all yeah that is pretty cool they're all good times it is. Um, yeah, but I do appreciate, I think it's good that Elder Rasband shared that experience because I'm sure there are a lot of people who relate with that. And it's nice It's nice for us, you know, day-to-day, regular, non-high-profile members of the church to, would we get those opportunities to really relate to some of the higher-up people? Because I think sometimes, even though we really shouldn't, we put them up on a pedestal, we elevate them oh, yeah. to some yeah. sort of holier status or whatever, even though... The point is, they are the weak things of the earth, and that's who the Lord works with. <laughs> like that's uh, that's who all of us are. Anyway, it's nice when you hear stories like that because it makes them more relatable in a good way. And I think there probably are a lot of people who got mission calls that they weren't thrilled about. And I think it's probably nice to um, be able to say, "Oh, that's it's okay. It's okay that that I went through that because Elder Rasband went through that too. It's a normal thing. Uh, in the end." We're all serving Christ, and that's what matters. Anyway, so I just I appreciated. I, I thought that was a good, good little, little release from our brethren in Amen. serving. Yes. So let's move on forward. Uh, we don't really need to spend a whole lot of time on this because it was kind of done to death on the Facebook page and all over like Mormon Twitter and and social media. Uh, but there was this interesting, like the Church News had published um, sort of a summary of some remarks that President Nelson made. 
And as part of that summary, they'd kind of paraphrased him and said something about how he uh, said that the Book of Mormon was not a historical textbook. And of course, a lot of people jumped all over that and they're like, ha the historicity of the Book of Mormon is no longer up for debate. It's not, his- it's not a history. It's just a metaphor. Blah, blah, blah. You know, they just, some people took that and just ran as far and hard of it as they could. <laughs> and then it's interesting because then the, the, the church news uh, edited the story and re- yeah. Yeah. redid, yeah. And it kind of added in the actual quote from President Nelson, which is interesting. And, you know, like, and it, that's really probably what they should have done in the first place. But even then, like, if they were going to do that, it kind of seems like they should have given it even a little more of the surrounding context of what he was saying. But still, the, the whole, the clarification was, no, he's not saying it's not a history or that it's not historical or there's no historicity to it. He's saying it's not meant to be used as a historical textbook. It's not like, all right, let's memorize the succession of Jaredite kings. Because <laughs> like th- that's not the point. The point of the book of I'm Mormon not going to lie, folks. When you get to the chapter that explains Nephite currency, I just kind of skip those verses. I feel like they don't hold a lot of value for how I'm going <laughs> to get more out of the book. They don't hold a lot, whole lot of value, so you wouldn't, you'd say it's not even worth a C9 to you. It's not worth a C9 or Senine or whatever, actually. I, I don't even know what the pronunciations are. I, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, whatever. Just, it's, you know, that and there's a bunch of blood of the Riverside on. That's what I've got. That's what happens. Yep. No, and it's true. And so the whole point is, it's a book that is a witness for Christ. It's a spiritual witness. It's a spiritual source. Uh, when he was saying it was not a historical textbook, he wasn't trying to cast any kind of doubt on the histor- you know, the historicity or whether or not these things literally or actually happened. The official position of the church remains that these yeah. are true stories about real people and it happened somewhere in North or South America and that's as much as they're going to say about it. And there were many people just like flipping out, like saying, oh my gosh, does this mean like all the work of farms is just like for not all the all this work to discover Book of Mormon? Arc- no, it's, it's not that. Yeah, I think this is one of those... Um, instances of straining at gnats i think that's what jesus would have called it yeah yeah Yeah. anyway Um, we can move on it's not worth elder Elder bednar has kind of become our point man to a lot of the uh islamic i don't want to say islamic slash arabic world those are different things you know but but you get he's he's clearly he's been involved in a lot of this these areas this week so the church held a great event at byu called muslims and latter-day saints beliefs, values, and lifestyles, uh, during which they actually had many different members of the Muslim faith uh, speak essentially as panelists and keynotes. And then it culminated with Elder Bednar and Elder Gong discussing how to better understand Muslims. And we texted about this a bit, Jared. I think, yes, notwithstanding the fact that they did have Muslims present during the day, I think it would have been a little nice to still have like an imam or somebody on stage with them during this this crucial headline grabbing one just to kind of show that it's like imagine if like everything president nelson's been doing within NAACP did not actually have the NAACP at the press conference you know if we were just up there right saying but but, but anyway but still but didn't it, somebody it, point it, out you, you, you wait 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 hang on just real quick you cuz you guys mentioned that in the social media posts and somebody did respond and say no these this was like you know, a, a full conference, and these two yes, were not the only speakers. There were Muslim speakers and representatives there, so the the article yes, yes. just focused on these yes. two white yes. uh, elderly <laughs> <laughs> representatives of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. Although there were uh, you know, plenty of Muslim people in attendance and represented by speaking, etc. So yes, there there were there were. I'm just saying, I think it would have been the cherry on top to have one with them there for the big event that's going to get all the coverage. Because I'm not sure. seeing many articles about all the other speakers. Right, that, that could right have been a bit of good so, photo op, right, to actually have Good someone, photo op. Yeah, someone with them there, yeah. And that's what means something. I mean, because it's, it's sad to say, but Islamophobia it happens all around the world, but it absolutely happens within our ranks. There are many people... Who and I saw similarly, par- you know, things I'd paraphrase on Twitter. Who are people are going to say that's great? Oh, I love the Muslims, but like I'm still excited for Israel to blow them all off the face of the earth because that's what has to happen for the second coming or something like that, right? Like people still think these terrible thoughts, and uh, they don't want us to do that. Um, there's a great quote from uh, I believe Elder Bednar. He talked about the biases that even Latter Day Saints have made generalizations about Islam, and he said they are wrong and they are offensive. And he said, you know, such biases 
cause those who feel that way to overlook the kindness and goodness of the overwhelming majority of Muslims. To suggest that all Muslims are tied to grievous crimes here in the U.S. or elsewhere in the world is inaccurate and offensive to Muslims. Muslims disavow any such actions, just as Latter-day Saints do. Every major religion has extremists who misinterpret the teachings of their own religion and who seek to do wrong in the name of religion. And that is a message that we absolutely need to be preaching, not just about our Muslim friends, uh, but also within our own church. So I was glad to see this go down in general. I'm glad this whole event happened. It's a great great effort by them. And it's not the only thing we've done on this. Like years ago, I went to a fundraiser for CARE, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, and you know who buys a table at the fundraiser? LDS Public Affairs in Southern California. And it's a bunch of Mormons hanging out at the table with a bunch of Muslims at a fundraiser. And this is like, this is a thing we do, people. Um, so if any of you listening for some reason think that uh, we have radical views about Islam as a faith, please uh, reconsider those thoughts. That's uh, that's what I have to say. Did you also want to carry that on? And Because there's a segue, there's a perfect segue there too. Yes, 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 yes. I just didn't know if you had anything to say. So then the cool uh, little bit here, then Elder Bednar took off and went to the Middle East. And he's not the first one, to, he's not, it's from his first trip out there a couple of years ago, year and a half, it was pre-COVID. He went to Sudan, for example, and uh, our hearts are with the Sudanese right now who are dealing with a potential military coup at the time of recording. They've been trying to transition to democracy after overthrowing their the, the dictatorship of Bashad. Uh, for so many years. But now Elder Bednar is back in the Middle East and he visited, um, he's going to the Middle East and North Africa. And this was his first visit to the country of Jordan. Many people I know who have been to Jordan love Jordan. They say it's like the chill country in the region is the best way I can describe it. Hmm. But we have a branch in Amman, in the capital of Jordan. He spoke to the saints there. And um, it, it's multicultural, of course, as Jordanians and members from several other Middle Eastern countries and elsewhere. Uh, and he gave a devotional. Now he's he's traipsing about the Middle East. I don't know where everywhere his his travels are going to take him, but I love that he's going out there and engaging in this outreach with not just church members for a devotional, but obviously he's meeting with dignitaries, political leaders, all of the above, and uh, stressing the importance of good relations between our church and other governments and people of other faiths. And I think that's uh, that's terrific. It's um, the most recent apostle to travel to Jordan before that was Dallin H. Oaks in 2017. And Elder Holland went there in 2015. And so they note that, of course, church membership is small in Jordan, but we are active there. And uh, Latter-day Saint Charities is also active there. So good on you. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. In the article, it noted that, you know, some of the members in the, you know, of the local... I don't even know what you call it. I'll just say congregation because I don't know if it's branch, group, whatever. There's like, a branch there. Yeah, there's a branch. Okay, there. it's a branch. So they noted that some of the members, you know, were, as you would assume, expats who who are living in Jordan for business or work for the government or whatever. But also that there were Jordanian uh, church members that are part of that as well. And, you, and I don't know. This is, a, I guess, just a bad stereotype on my part. But I just kind of assume you know, that people who live in these Middle Eastern countries are usually Muslim, you know, which is generally true. Uh, but, you know, it's just cool. It was cool to see, oh, yeah, I mean, it's a diverse group that he's addressing there that some are, uh, you know, European or American or whatever else. But also there are people from the local regions that are members of the church. And I was like, it's good to be reminded that my stereotypes are often incorrect and that I need to be... <laughs> Uh, well, I wouldn't well, beat yourself up too much about it, though. I mean, um, you're right to say that it's a strong likelihood in the region that someone is Muslim, you know, overwhelmingly. So, I mean, Jordan is, I looked it up for you, you know, Jordan's like 92% Sunni Muslim, but it right. is 6% Christian. You know, Egypt is about 10% Christian because of Coptic Christianity, for mm -hmm. example, and Jordanians are Christians. Um, and there are Christians scattered around the Middle East, and it's changed a lot. Like Lebanon used to be, Lebanon was essentially created as the more or less Christian because uh, state because you got Syria and Lebanon they were French protectorates we'll spare you a lot of the details but a lot of that's changed because a lot of the Christians fled Lebanon and came to the US and Europe and this and that but yeah there are absolutely Christians uh, scattered throughout the Middle East just some countries have stronger cultural uh, identification with Islam I guess than than others in the region in terms of how much it drives daily life uh, right looking at you Jordan's neighbor to the south so Yes. Good times. Yeah. So I guess this is sort of a, a I was going to say good segue, but there's really nothing good about this next story. Uh, so the in, the Salt Lake Tribune reported on 
a Department of Justice report that uh, it, it was the result of an investigation into the Davis School District in Utah, and it was uh, investigating racism in the school district. And so just before we move forward, just let that sink in a little bit. The, the United States Department of Justice, a federal organization, was called to investigate a single school district in Davis County in Utah because of the problem with racism there. Like that that in and of itself is a little damning, right? But uh, the report itself is even more so. Like I guess they found, and this is just a quote sort of from the conclusion or the introduction of the of the report, is that they found severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive race-based harassment. Um, and it's not only from the students to fellow students, but also from the staff and the faculty that, and it was, uh, the majority apparently seems to have been anti-black racism, but also mm-hmm. there was a, a severe anti-Asian discrimination as well. Anyway, this is, um, this is a problem. And so, uh, the link that, that, uh, Jeff shared with me was a article written on, by Common Consent by Sam Brunson, who we've talked about many times before on this show. We, we both find him to be a very thoughtful and an interesting writer. Uh, but yeah, Brother Brunson really digs into why this is an issue. And it's not just an issue for Davis County, but he, he argues that it's an issue for the church. And and if not, I mean, and, there, and I think his argument really is making an argument, is, is saying it's a problem for the church at large. But if nothing else, it's certainly a problem for local church culture in Davis County. Because as he points out, 77% of Davis County is LDS. Um, and so, you know, statistically, a good portion of this horrible racist harassment has to be coming from church members. And where are they learning it? If, whether it's kids, whether it's teachers or, fa- you know, staff members, mm-hmm. they're learning it from local culture. They're, they learned it in their homes. They learned it, you know, from their neighbors, from their friends. Um, and it's a big problem. Anyway, I don't know how much we have to, we need to say about this either because, I mean, it's it's really depressing. <laughs> you should check it out. You, the Salt Lake Tribune article is available. It's, it's out there. Uh, who is this a Peggy Fletcher stack? It's not. It's Courtney Tanner. Anyway, check out the you can check out the Tribune article, but you can also access the Department of Justice report. It's available on the DOJ website. Um, they had a press release, and you can see the actual read the actual report from them. And it's there's really very disturbing things. So it's just funny. Like again, not funny, but. I guess it's my naivety kind of kicking in again, or my stereotypes, uh, my assumptions. Like I, I just assume that like things like this don't happen anymore. Mm. Uh, I grew up, I guess, in a fairly progressive area. Like I, it was reasonably racially diverse, although it was definitely not um, very socioeconomically diverse. You know, it was kind of definitely a middle, middle to upper middle class area where I grew up. But you know, I, I didn't think there was a whole lot of this terrible name calling and, and race-based harassment still happening. I mean, based on just my experiences as a teenager 20 plus years ago, but um, no, it's a problem and it's a big problem still. And I don't know. I don't know. It, what, what further value is there in discussing this, Jeff? Are there solutions or are I, we just uh, here, like, what, well, what what's you, your If take? we're talking about, about um, home centered church supported, I think a lot of this absolutely comes down to parents. I mean, this is learned behavior in many ways because if if kids are doing that at school, it's multiple things. If kids are acting that way at school, they've got environmental factors outside of school that are influencing them. But then it's compounded by the fact that teachers and administrators, uh, who we can assume are likely also members of our faith, are not checking it and are instead jumping in. That's a whole, just that's a, that's a whole mess of an issue. And you're right; I don't know what else to say about it other than do better, people. That's really all we can say about it. But uh, it's kind of an indictment, and I agree with Sam Brunson. There's, it's not specifically about the church, but when you're dealing with a populace that's three quarters Latter Day Saint, it is about the church, and we have to look into ourselves and ask ourselves why we are permitting our friends and neighbors to act in such a way. Uh, that is not being your brother's keeper. That is not mourning with those who mourn. That is. 
denigrating somebody based off of superficial factors that are out of their control and, and have no bearing on the quality of person they are. So anyway, I'm with you. Um, moving along briefly here, Jana Reese has the hot news here. You probably have a trunk or treat party coming up. Maybe some of you sometime, maybe this weekend, even the day before Halloween, which is another whole issue I want to get into. Do you Halloween on Sunday? My friends, anyone of you with kids sound off. Are you taking your kids out on Sunday to do trick-or-treating or are you going to do a trunk-or-treat with your ward and call that that? I'd love to know. Is trick-or-treating a non-Sabbath activity, right? I don't know. So bearing that in mind, the church handbook was quietly updated apparently to remove the prohibition on wearing masks at church activities. That's not to say it won't return, but that's what happened. Um, so right now, that part that used to say things that were the restriction was um, activities that involve wearing masks, except in dramatic productions, were not allowed. It's no longer there, just in time for Halloween. So if you're trick or treating this weekend or trunk or treating at your ward, wear that mask. Dress up like people from Squid Game. That's apparently a show the kids are watching, Ugh. and so so you can do that. So I love the I, I love little finds like this. You know, it might change again in the end. Who knows? Like we have no idea. But yeah, I mean, her assumption, right, is that they're gonna they'll they'll quietly change it back once uh, wearing masks at you know in church, like you know wearing the sort of mask that protects people from your <laughs> your your vaporous germs. Um, that they, and that what, one what, too. Maybe that's why they removed it because they knew people would have to at least wear face masks. Exactly. <laughs> like every kid should be dressed as like the Winter Soldier from you know from the Marvel movies because like it's a perfect opportunity. Oh, I saw something so much better on it was like an eBay ad on Facebook, and uh-huh. it's literally a sun visor that looks like something out of GI Joe, like Snake Eyes from GI Joe. Basically, oh, yeah. it's it's forehead down to your chin. But it's sunglasses material, and it's so. But it's both a germ protection and eye protection. Uh, if anyone buys those and wears those, I love them so much because if I walked into a round like that, people would wonder what on earth was going on with me. Uh, I I just just love that. Just wanted to share how much I love it. Thank you. Can I just say one other thing that I, one other thing that I love on Jana's article? You know, she has a. Uh, a photo at the top and it says and the, the caption is children attend a trunk or treat in western nebraska in 2017 <laughs> and then the picture is of a kid wearing like the most horrifying skull jester mask that you could imagine a kid wearing to a church activity it's just like she's illustrating her point about masks being allowed by showing this like really terrifying grotesque skull mask yeah, it should have been a rubber mask of brigham young that had to exist right, <laughs> right. I mean, and it's funny and it's also funny because it's you know it notes that it's in 2017 so that which would have still been during the prohibition on wearing masks to activities although she doesn't say that, that it doesn't say on it's not the church, caption though. that it's a church trunk or treat right i mean other it's not just the Latter-day Saints who have trunk or treats. Anyway, I just think it's funny that's like she just found a Flickr photo of kids in masks that was Creative Commons licensed. That's all it is. Exactly. It, it, it is just it funny because it's like we're we discussing how thing. people can wear masks at a church activity. Here's a terrifying mask for your child to wear. <laughs> anyway, all right, we're waning minutes. Any other uh, what, what other stories do we want to hit on here, Jerry? We don't have to do all of them. We got a couple. Well, let's just around. let's just keep on stirring up, stirring the pot. Okay, so I here we go. So there was a a a lawmaker, a member of the legislature in Utah. His name is Steve Christensen, and it's interesting. One of the things that makes him interesting is that not only is he a Republican lawmaker for the state of Utah, he is also that is interesting. <laughs> He is also an employee of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He's, it seems he's pretty high up in the organization of the presiding bishop. In, um, so he uh, recently did a presentation. It was uh, on election integrity to the Judiciary Interim Committee. So it, you know, uh-huh. so this is an official government PowerPoint presentation. And it was all about, you know, election security and integrity, et cetera. I mean, the the code for that is 
you know, he's 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 arguing that you know that the that the election was compromised in 2020, and he 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 has been in the past and continues to be a very outspoken, as the article says, an outspoken proponent of auditing Utah's 2020 election results. Which is funny because didn't Utah go red? Yeah, like to what end? Like, what is it? Just because Trump didn't win like enough? I mean, Utah? we all saw what happened What's... in Arizona when that happened because they actually found that. Trump got, Trump got actually fewer votes than they originally thought as a result of the audit. Um, so what, is he trying to flip the election in Utah to go blue? Or is he just is he trying to prove that? I don't know what he's trying to prove. Nobody knows. Anyway. Uh, anyway, but so what was really interesting and what was controversial about this whole thing is that the template that he used for his PowerPoint presentation was a template from the church. It was from his employment at the church and it's it was very obviously this LDS, you know, template. There were little you know watermarks and and you know footnote marks on the thing that made it very clear. And so, uh, why is a person working in his official capacity as a legislator using? I mean, it, it would be inappropriate if I was a legislator and I used General Dynamics slides. Like, you know, it's it's like, why would yeah. I use work slides for a government thing? Like, that would be inappropriate and unethical for any number of reasons. But especially in a place where the church has such influence, and you know that probably the majority of the people he was presenting to were also members of the church, it's like, you know he's like kind of giving a nod that like, you should listen to me and this is more important to listen to because, hey, look, I'm using church slides. Like, it's just, mm. it raises a lot of ethical questions and it's it feels pretty shady. I don't know. What do you what, I, what do you got, Jeff? Yeah, I'm with you 100%. I think it, it, it continues to blur the line between church and state and a state struggles with that already. And uh, one thing I thought was funny is when they looked into the metadata of the templates, I don't know how, I think, because I think the presentation has to be publicly available. So somebody dug it up on the legislature website and it was originated by one Dean M. Davies. It was Elder Davies who passed away just before conference, who was in the presiding bishopric before that. So this also, I would assume then this means he didn't just grab this recently. This is probably a deck template he's been using for years from back when Bishop Davies was in the presiding bishopric, uh, which is just, I don't know, that for some reason that makes it even worse to me. It's not like he just randomly grabbed it one day last week when he was putting his presentation together. He's probably been just using church collateral uh, for a very long time. And it was, I think it's just, yeah, like you said, bad form all around. Why just... Why, 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 Utah? Why? You just, yeah, it frustrates <laughs> me so, so much. And then, yeah. then the worst of all, that's that these sorts of views, extremist stuff that was like decried in general conference by President Oaks, but it's like totally cool. This guy works professionally with the presiding bishopric. That's his day job. And that's totally okay. And then he's close to the church and he's in the legislature. Should you have to like, should you not be allowed to work for the church? If you're in Utah, it'd be picking on one entity, which I don't think is constitutional necessarily. But you could see the argument for how if one works professionally for the church, at least especially in a senior capacity, one should perhaps not be allowed to be in a legislature in Utah that is often crafting legislation where the church wants to chime in about it. And I don't know if, if this particular individual has thought to recuse himself when things have come up that have been directly affecting the church, even if it's down to like the Zion curtain, you know, for alcohol or who knows what else. Right. I'd be shocked if they did, because I don't really, I frankly don't think of of that, the setup we have in Utah politics with people saying like, yeah, I'm a little too close to the fact on this and I probably shouldn't be involved. Nobody cares. No, they're just right. out there like further saying, tell me what to do, salt, what to do church HQ and I will do it for you up on the Hill. And that, right. Be, well, I mean, yeah, what the thing it's reminding me of, and this is not at all the same, but it's, it's, but not, no, it's not, not at all the same. It's, it's definitely not the same, but there are, I'm just going to say what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of President Benson and back when he was an apostle and was asked to serve on Eisenhower's cabinet as the Secretary of Agriculture. And he had to get special permission from the First Presidency in order to be an apostle, an acting apostle for the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, uh, uh, you know, one of the highest administrators in the organization of the church. 
and also be in such a high-profile political position as being Secretary of Agriculture for the President of the United States. And they, you know, in the end, they encouraged him to do it, and they said it was, you know, that, they, that he should. But still, there had to be permission for that to happen. And I know it's not the same because Steve Christensen is not an apostle; he's not even a seventy, but he is a high-ranking uh, church employee who has a lot of sway over things that happen in the church. And like you say, like he also then arguably has a conflict of interest when he's on the legislature and is potentially, you know, going to vote for or debate a bill that the church has a vested interest in. So, yeah, it just seems to me, yeah, that even if even if there wasn't a rule that, you know, disallowed such a thing, you'd still think there would be a lot more care taken to make sure that people who are in high profile, high power, high, you know, decision as power as in decision making ability in church structure don't have a conflict of interest by working simultaneously in high-profile positions in the government. So, ah, I don't know. Yeah, And what just, worries me is I don't think anybody cares about that somewhere like Utah, because they think we're just doing the good work. Right. right. And, and so, so I can see the Utahns and the Republicans in Utah not caring about that with, you know, with, with Steve Christensen, but I would think that the church would be concerned about that. Um, I would hope they would be. But then again, not a conflict of interest, but, you know, the whole Elder Stevenson board chair member thing going on with that IPO. Right. But again, they, he had to get special permission for that. He got, so, that's true. He got special permission for it. Exactly. So the, the difference there why, is that but, he did go through proper channels to make sure that there wasn't a conflict of interest. And you, and you could still argue that there is or whatever, but the difference is they actually did review it. <laughs> so True. Absolutely true. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, well, I think we'll leave you this week with the funny story. The headline has changed since I first shared this article, but now a former BYU student gets sent home on The Bachelor. I'm mostly mentioning because we no, just talked about... No, Bachelorette. On The Bachelorette, yes. But, uh, sorry, and a former, a former The Bachelor recently toured the Mesa, Arizona Temple and church-affiliated media went gaga for it, which I thought was hilarious because we're like... Why are we giving so much visibility to the Bachelor franchise as Latter-day Saints? But here we are in Deseret News because it's a former BYU student who was on The Bachelor. Yes, Garrett Ida, 33, was a contestant on the very first episode, but he was one of the six men who got sent home in the premiere. Oh, my goodness. He'll never he'll never find love. So anyway, that's fun. Like, yay. Well, no, what's have funny they highlighted about it? women? Here's the question though. We know there's been Latter-day Saint women who have appeared on The Bachelor as potential bachelorettes. And they are often there and, you know, not 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 capping the, them sleeves, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> and uh and I, I, I don't think we highlight that. I I can't think of articles that talked about former BYU grad women who appeared on The Bachelor, and I this is there's a lot of supposition here, but that I have to wonder if there isn't some sort of a double standard when we're happy to show a man in his suit doing that, but we would never dare highlight the women. I was going to say, was there a scandalous hot tub scene where he was wearing a bathing, you know, swimming trunks that maybe were a little too tight or a little too short up his thigh? Like, I want to know if he was really, you know, skirting those modesty standards, because that's really the important thing we should be focusing on. It is what we should be focusing on. I was, I actually, I should look this up because I know there have been Mormon women who have done and been in the Bachelor franchise, and I don't know how much we have highlighted their participation. Like, we should be obsessing over whether he waxed his chest, you know, like his, yes. his dress and grooming and beauty. Like, that's really the important thing to focus on when, yes. we, when we see people in the media, you know? Yes. Um, uh, Jared, one, you get me, Jared. That's why. <laughs> I was like, dang it, Garrett, why are you waxed your chest? Why are you wearing those shorty trunks? That's why you got kicked off, because you didn't live <laughs> up to your standards. No, what's funny to me, and I think this might be a uh, clue as to why he didn't last very long. This is from his official bio, you know, from the, his, for the show. Uh, it says, Garrett is hoping for a family one day. And if a woman does not want kids that he is not interested, Garrett is serious about finding the one and is ready to have a little fun finding her. And it's like, he just said right off the bat, like, choose me bachelorette and let's make babies right away. <laughs> like who's not going to, it seems like it could women be a good... love overeager men. We all know that. That is I, that's one of the he, easiest ways to get the woman of your dreams. He's like, if you don't want a... you want children, I'm not interested. And she might have just been like, okay, then bye. <laughs> you know, 
Uh, the other things that was funny, there were a few other facts uh, taken out of his bio that I just thought were like kind of funny. One of them was Garrett calls himself a quote unquote plant plant daddy. Uh, what the heck does that mean? I, who knows? Daddy? But, but the final, at least the, in the Desert News article, the final bullet point of the things that they drew out of his <laughs> out of his bio was Garrett loves pickles. And like if that, I mean, I don't know. Like I guess if I was going to be on The Bachelorette, I guess I would also note my quirky food tastes. <laughs> oh, man, Garrett, I just love pickles. Garrett appears to have the personality of a piece of paper. uh, or he has the personality of a weird utah guy who you know somehow made it onto a show and thought his quirkiness would be endearing when really it was very off-putting oh i'm just sad i missed this because i haven't watched the bachelor in years (laughs) and i can't watch it right now thanks to verizon fios even if i wanted to our non-sponsor verizon well well, um if you're are you good there jared are we are we calling it a week i think so i think we're good all right all right well, folks, this was good times all around. I didn't do any plugs at the beginning of the show. So subscribe to the show, Dagnabbit. If you haven't done that, hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to this thing. And repeat, repeat, cleanse, repeat, wash, rinse, all that stuff every time. And please join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we will enlighten your minds and your hearts with so many wonderful things. Uh, we'll give a quick plug, too, if you uh, listen, on, especially on Apple Podcasts. We'd love a review. Reviews are great, especially when they're nice. So consider that when you're writing it just you know i'm just just try to do that and a big piece of love to our patreon supporters you guys help make this show possible you guys help literally your kind donations of three or so dollars a month and any of you can do this at patreon.com slash this week in mormons your kind donations help us pay for hosting our data for our server fees for the website for all the little doohickeys we have to do to make this show possible which takes time and resources you guys make it possible i cannot thank you enough for that thank you very much for the little tiny sacrifice you do to help everyone else enjoy the show so you guys are awesome uh jared my friend as always it is such a pleasure to talk to you you enlighten my mind and set me on a wonderful course for the remainder of my week i'm always always glad to be here jeff nice of you to say i mean my wife doesn't even say that so very nice of you to say everyone wonderful to have you here we hope until we meet again you have a terrific week sorry again for the late show this week we hope you'll forgive that and uh, this has been worth your while and we'll get with you again earlier next week um assuming i don't live in a a, a tent by this point and my you know if i go further luddite as the week goes on we'll see but until that time for jared i'm jeff this has been this week in mormons have a terrific week we'll talk to you soon bye-bye